All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey. And far too often, we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Welcome to another episode of Rethinking Faith. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is the ever-beautiful Marty Frederick. Marty, what's up, man? Well, you know, just being beautiful, I guess. Nice. It's According hard. to you. That, yeah. Well, that's a hard job. It is. Someone's so, got to do it, but it's right. <laughs> what? How do, how do you maintain your beauty standards? What does that look like for you? Well, first things first, you have to have a good cup of coffee, no matter what. That okay. is like a, a must. And then if you haven't had coffee for the day, you, you're at risk of gargoyling is what I call it. Um, you know, so you got to have coffee. And then after coffee, you just got to grow a really great beard. Oh, man, uh, I can't do that. So I'll never be beautiful. Well, but. But here's the thing. All that matters is that one person thinks you're beautiful and that's true for you. So Sweet. who cares about the rest of the people? Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're the one person that thinks I'm beautiful. <laughs> it's definitely not my wife. <laughs> well, Noel, if you're listening, which I know you're not, nope. um, <laughs> I'm glad you appreciate Josh. Cause if you didn't, I don't know what would happen to him. Yeah. It'd but... be bad. Kill my, kill my non-existent ego. But Josh, before we get started with our guest, because I have to do this, I just can't help not doing this. This is really needed. Um, Dude, the Bruins kicked the Capitals behind. You should have said ass. It's a stronger word. Like it wasn't even like it wasn't even a hard thing to do. Like it was like super easy. Very easy. And like I would I don't know what I well, I do know what I'd rather. I would rather my team not make the playoffs then make the playoffs but then get just brutalized in oh yeah for sure yeah i mean it's the third time in a row that they've lost in the first round of the playoffs and i mean i think some major changes are coming the caps are i don't know if you know this but they are the oldest team in the league well if you have zadeno chara on your team still yeah, and it's time. Right, right, right. <laughs> to right. find some new players. So the average age of the team is insanely high. Basically, they were old, slow, and beat up. Like more than half the team is nursing insane injuries, and it just it was not going to end well. They signed uh, Sergey Fedorov or Steve Eisenberg. So, <laughs> <laughs> so so good good on the the Bruins for being young and fast and talented. Yeah. Uh, I think some major changeups are coming in this offseason. 
um, some big ones. And some of those young kids that we've been developing need to uh, step up and I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not one of those people that are like, Oh no, it, it, you know, it's the ref's fault. Blah, blah, blah. Like the caps just got outplayed and they kind of sucked. So at the end of the episode today, are you going to say go Bruins? Hell no. Go caps all day. Well, every day. well so I, I, this, this is rabbit hole, so we don't have to keep going, but like, are you yeah, the person you- that cheers against the team that beat your team? Or cheers for the team that beat your team? Because it, uh, I, there's arguments for both. It depends on the team. I mean, I'm not a fan of the Bruins, but there are some players on the Bruins that I really like. Okay. Um, and so it's it's really going to depend on who they play because they're either going to play the Islanders or the Penguins. And if they play yeah. the Penguins, I'm going to cheer for Boston. If they play the Islanders, I'll, I'll cheer for the Islanders because Barry Trotz is their former Caps coach. Okay. But, all right. Well, now, I just people, let it ask. You know, there's people who like really don't care about this whole thing. Like Jace, text me on a regular basis. Stop talking about hockey. No one cares. <laughs> well, so Jace, this is for you. That part. We yes. care about hockey. And even though we love you, this is our podcast. So true. That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Just thought I'd make it clear that. Like... <laughs> All right, man. Well, let's go ahead and bring on our guest because they're waiting patiently. And uh, I don't know if they care about hockey at all. So we don't want them to, you know, cancel the Zoom call or something on us. So uh, (laughs) with us today is Gabriel Gordon. Gabe, how's it going, man? It's going well, man. It's going well. How are you guys? We're well. Well, Gabe, before we go jump into our main topic for the day, we just have a couple like brief um bio type questions so we wanted to ask so first uh, who are you and what do you do oh man that's a big question well i like to start off by saying i have the same myers-briggs as the joker and captain jack sparrow um so that pretty much sums it all up but uh, okay. my name is gabriel nathaniel gordon um i have my mom's maiden name my dad's name is roth um and i'm originally from the seattle area in washington the best state in the union, obviously. And I, my grandparents were Assembly of God missionaries. So I spent some time growing up overseas in Thailand. Um, I spent a year of high school living in South Dakota, and I mostly lived in exile. The people of Seattle exiled us to Oklahoma. And so I grew up there and uh, went to Oklahoma Baptist University, where I got my undergraduate degree in anthropology, and I double majored in cross-cultural ministry with an emphasis in international church planting, which means I don't make any money. And then <laughs> after being out of school for a couple years and, and marrying my beautiful wife, um, I started attending Portland Seminary, where I'm getting my master's of theological studies with an emphasis in biblical studies, um, and where I wrote my thesis, not in the subject of biblical studies, but in historical theology um, over the church father origin and his comparison with uh, the fundamentalist understanding of scripture. And I just wrote my second book. So I think that kind of sums it up. I have nice. a dog named Carl Bart. That's that's important too. <laughs> we can hear him. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry about sweet. that. No, you're good. Josh's dogs bark on the podcast all the time. I, so. And and I'm wearing a dog <clears throat> shirt. Look, this is my my, my wife's uh, company. She works for called Barks. So listeners, it's a kick-ass shirt. It says love, but the O is a pit bull face. Nice. Now they know. The round face. Round face. That's what they. That's the. That's the like the I don't know the weird name for them sometimes. 
but um okay you're cool talking about brandon <laughs> no, it wasn't. Baseball, we can't we can't yeah we that. can't do that um, <laughs> oh, I, I, I should say one more thing too though um and so here's a biagra i'm gonna i'm gonna sing you the father abraham song but the the jewish version and you have to be at least partially jewish my friends they say i'm jewish because i'm i'm a quarter jewish um and so but you have to have some sort of jewish heritage to be able to sing the song but this is this is the jewish version not the virgin definitely not um this is the jewish version of the father abraham song are you guys ready are you ready we're ready ready for this okay father abraham had many sons clap along guys many sons had father abraham i am one of them and you're adopted (laughs) if you grew up in the church that's hilarious but not that's so boring i like it (laughs) nice thanks yeah well so Gabe, we started the show off. Wait, do you want to be called Gabe or Gabriel? Do you care? You call me Bob if you want. Or All right, Nancy, Carl. You know. um, so um, we started the show talking about hockey because it's important to Josh and I. So um, who is your favorite ice hockey team? So I hate sports. Um, so I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> it's okay. Although it was fun listening to you guys. Um, I would have to say the Mighty Ducks because that's what someone told me to say. And then my wife told me to say the Avalanche because we live in Colorado and that's the Colorado hockey team. So but you I've know, never seen them. Okay. Being from Seattle, starting next season, I believe, you will be able to say your favorite team is the Seattle Kraken. Which is a dope-ass oh. name for a hockey Because they Seattle's getting an NHL ice hockey team. Yep. Interesting. And- so it'll probably be similar to the way my family has treated the supersonics so yeah when so none of my family likes sports that's just i i don't know why just even both sides of the family mom and dad's side nobody likes sports um i know it's a travesty for some people but when uh the supersonics seattle supersonics the basketball team left and went to oklahoma and became the thunder you know Mm -hmm. um once people in seattle don't like the thunder even though nobody i as far as i'm aware went and saw their games and two um, my family has always seen them as traitors. And so um, it'll probably be like that, that we we'll, won't pay attention to them until they leave Seattle and become another team. And then we'll, you know, <laughs> be mad at them. Yeah. yeah be mad at them. <laughs> well, from what I've, from my time living in Seattle for a few years, I rec- I remember that it was like the Mariners and, mm-hmm. or the Seahawks. Yeah. But that was pretty much the extent of like what people actually cared about. There might've been other teams, but I don't think anyone cared any further yeah. Um, so interesting. I don't know when you were there, but before 2014, before the Seattle uh, uh, Seahawks won the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. I don't remember anyone in Seattle wearing any Seahawks gear at all in the airport in in the city, wherever. I don't remember it. And then as soon as the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, I went to Seattle. I flew in airport. Everyone was wearing Seattle Superhawks or Superhawks Seahawks gear Everyone in Seattle was wearing Seahawks gear. So I, I, I get the feeling that Seattleites are bandwagoners. Okay. So, all right. I don't know. Maybe you have a different take on that, but you well, know more about sports than I do. So, but you know more about Seattle. So we'll just, we'll leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, then I guess the, the only other bio question we have, which is much more um, theologically serious, I suppose. Um, what would you, what would you say is the most important aspect of your faith that you have had to rethink 
Oh, that I've had to rethink. Oh man. Um, so the way, you know, the, the popular term is deconstruction and people talk about the, you know, the phrase, uh, I deconstructed my faith or whatever, um, which isn't how you phrased it, but I'm, I'm going to use this as a jumping off point. Uh, I have learned to respond to that or to think about it this way, that I never deconstructed my faith. I deconstructed the theology uh, surrounding my faith. And so my faith has always been in Jesus. So I, I almost wanted to say Jesus, but I think in reality, um, it, the, the biggest part of my faith that I had to rethink or my theology was the Bible. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think, I think a lot of times deconstruction gets a bad rap and I, and I think, yeah. um, for many people often how you just described it is what they are referring to when they yeah, yeah. are deconstructing. They're not saying, well, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I think they're saying, I believe in Jesus but all this other stuff has gotten away. And so I don't want to yeah. believe in Jesus plus I want to yeah. believe in Jesus. And in order to, in, in their mind, in order to do that, I have to do this. So that, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I, I mean, Josh, you have anything to add to that? I, but it sounded good to, I mean, it sounds good to me. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm <laughs> on board and that's, that's kind of why our, our podcast is called rethinking faith and the re is in parentheses because it's, it's implying that this is an ongoing process. And so hmm. Um, like I understand the language of deconstruction, reconstruction. I used to use it a lot and I know we have listeners that use it and that's fine. I don't want to, you know, take that away from anybody, but I just think thinking of things is like maybe, uh, like evolving, like, you know, there's like the evolving faith conference. I like that mm -hmm. language. Like my faith has evolved. It's grown. It's shifted. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But I think, I mean, but I still think deconstruction can fit in there because there are ideas that need to be deconstructed and then you can rethink yeah, yeah. those things. So I don't know. I like to think of it as like this ongoing process. The, the phrase that I like to throw around and hopefully one day um, I'll have my own book <laughs> about this. Uh, but it, that faith is, is a journey of becoming and we mm -hmm. never really quite arrive. Um and so just this journey of becoming is kind of what it means to be human. Um, and so maybe one day uh, I'll have a book of my own and I'll be cool like you because you wrote a book and I haven't. <laughs> Actually, you said you done, you done too. So even better. Um, yeah, just, you know, flex on us. And uh, flex. <laughs> yeah. So and today that's actually what we wanted to talk to you about uh, is your most recent book, which is called God Speaks. And it's about uh, ins the inspiration of scripture, which is cool because you, you said the Bible is the thing that you've had to rethink the most. So this should be a, a fun conversation. Um, but can you just kind of tell us a bit about how this project came to be? Yeah. Um, so in the introduction of the book, I talk about um, this book, this project is kind of a culmination of the last seven or eight years of my life. Um, I begin with the story of um, that I kind of trace everything back to, and that is a moment when I was in, I was a sophomore of, uh, in college. Um, I had just been asked to preach at a church, and it was going to be my first time preaching, never been asked to preach before. I wasn't a pastoral major, and they think that pastoral majors were the only ones that could preach, and so um Anyway, I, for some reason, I was thinking about not using scripture. I don't remember the exact reason why, but uh, 
I, I told my, I told this to my roommate and he immediately, and I'm still friends with Garrett today, but he immediately was like, you cannot do that. And so we, we ended up getting into this big argument about like, was, was the Bible necessary for salvation? And was it necessary? And some of these terms, I would use different terms now, but was it necessary for salvation? And was it necessary uh, uh, to walk in your faith once you were saved? And uh, I, I essentially gave no to both those answers, uh, kind of citing Abraham and anyone that lived before the, any of the scriptures were written. What if, if the scriptures were necessary for both those things and Abraham couldn't have been saved and he couldn't have walked with God? Uh, we know that that's not true. And so therefore it's not necessary. Um, so, so, but I, so that's the first moment. I won't go through all the moments, but there are, there are integral moments in my life and in, in my story that led up to the culmination of this book. Um, but kind of where the, the beginning of the actual writing process and, and kind of bringing these ideas came together was, um, I think my first year of seminary. So I started reading Thomas J. Ord, uh, in between undergrad and, and seminary, and he came up to Portland and I'd had him on our podcast a few times and he'd helped me, uh, he guided me through the writing process for my first book, uh, which is actually dedicated to him. And after, uh, after all that stuff, he came up to Portland, uh, to speak at my seminary. And so we got coffee together at our favorite coffee shop up there and well, not his, mine and my seminary buddies. But uh, I was basically telling him that I think I wanted to write a book on the implications uh, of essential kenosis, his theology of the uncontrolling love of God for biblical inspiration. And he had basically said no one had written on this. Um, I think there's one small article uh, in the uncontrolling love of God essays that kind of touches on the subject, but not really. Um, and, but other than that, there's nothing, no books, no articles, nothing that he's aware of, or that I'm aware of. And so, uh, that's kind of where the, the culmination of this book came from was that conversation or some of the ideas, um, behind that conversation. Um, and there's a lot more to it, but that, uh, that's kind of the beginning of it. So, yeah, right on, man. I'm so, like I told you when we were texting, I'm so glad you, you did write it because I've always wanted to read one. Um, <laughs> specifically uh, about the implications of essential uh, kenosis and, and the inspiration of scripture. So well done. Thank you. I for... wrote this for you, Josh. Oh, sweet. Thanks. Just you. I appreciate yeah. it. No one else. He just wrote it last it. week too, by the way, yeah. after you guys started talking and Josh was like, I really wanted this book. He's like, well, okay, I'll write it then. And so that was it. Yep. Yeah. So that's it's the handlebar that's... mustache. That's what gets him where he, where he needs to go. So. <laughs> Um, well, so Gabe, so when it comes to the inspiration of scripture, what's some of the common ideas and understandings that are floating around right now? Yeah. So in the book, I talk about, uh, six popular notions of inspiration. And when I say popular, I use that phrase intentionally because I don't think these are historical notions of inspiration. I think they're new. Um, and in that sense, they're progressive or novel or liberal, whatever terms you want to use. It, and which I think, you know, helps to frame the conversation because a lot of these 
ideas of inspiration tend to get framed as if they're old, as, as if they're the historical view that Christians have always believed. But in reality, they're very progressive in the sense that they're new, right? They're 100, 150 years old. So, so there's six notions, um, and, and most of these I would put in that category of they're actually new. So I just say these are popular notions of inspiration. These are what the loudest voices are saying. So uh, one, and they all kind of center around the idea that when you read Second Timothy three sixteen, all Scripture is God breathed, God inspired. That that means Scripture is God's word, and that Scripture is inerrant. So they all kind of center around that. So the first problem I deal with is the problem of evil, um, because the underlying theology. Uh, uh, be behind the idea that the Bible is an inerrant word of God is also the same underlying theology behind um, what most of these people have, uh, how they deal with the problem of evil. So uh, should I describe briefly what the problem of evil is? Yeah, okay. yeah, that'd be helpful. And so this, um, I think, yeah, so I have like out of the six, and you don't have to go. Yeah, through you, you, you tell me what you want to talk about and I'll talk about it. No, no. Yeah, I got you. So the, we have three that we wanted to like, to jump on specifically, like okay. to have more detail about, but, um, the, I think before we jump to the problem of evil though, maybe, a, uh, and it's my fault. I wrote the question, maybe a better way to, to ask it would have been, um, so, I don't know. Let's go relational with it. Like growing up, what, like, what did, what were you told about the inspiration of scripture? Like, what, what was your understanding? Like for me, I was told some version of verbal dictation theory, like, okay, God whispered in Paul's ear, Hey, Paul, write this down. And Paul like wrote it down. And like, yeah. that was my understanding. That's what I was taught. I was taught that the Bible is inerrant. Um, and that's kind of where I hung out for a while. I don't know if that's similar to Marty's story or not. Marty can chime in, but that's, I think start there and then we'll jump into your, uh, your, your arguments against. Yes. Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess maybe then the best place to start is to say that the idea that I grew up in. Uh, so I grew up assembly of God in the Southern Baptist. I was in the Southern Baptist church, even though theologically I wasn't Southern Baptist at this point, but until I was about 23 years old, at which point I was kicked out of a church in Seattle. That's when I kind of left the Southern Baptist world. I kind of took that as a, okay, I've been kicked out. I'm good. I'm I'll go somewhere else. Um, but in that period, I, and especially early on in the Assembly of God background, so I'll quickly say this, Pentecostalism is, in its origins, is not fundamentalist. And when I say fundamentalist, I more or less mean belief in inerrancy of scripture. Um, but over the last hundred years or so, I don't know all the history, a lot of Pentecostal, Assembly of God, Foursquare, whatever, have taken on some of those fundamentalist elements. Um, and my family was one of those uh, Pentecostal groups had taken on that fun those fundamental elements. So growing up in the Assembly of God world and then going into the Southern Baptist world and eventually into a Southern Baptist college, <clears throat> that's essentially what I was taught as well, is that your faith is entirely based off the Bible because the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Um, that is, and I think we were also taught um, uh, specifically verbal plenary uh, inspiration that um, each word was uh, given to the biblical authors and that they essentially acted as instruments. It's not quite dictation theory <clears throat> in which God, you know, basically picked up the person and possess them and, and use them as a pen. It's similar. You get the same product, I think. Um, 
they would disagree with that. So I don't want to put them all in a box, but, um, but yeah, that's essentially what I grew up with. And because it was the inerrant word of God, my, my, my faith was supposed to be based off of that. Yeah. It was like, uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Marty. I was going to say, Josh, you asked earlier, I, I don't know that I really remember like being told anything specifically, but I think I walked around believing that it was more so like these people like someone like a Paul um, were writing things on Jesus. They were writing things on Jesus on their own, but they were inspired by, by the Holy spirit. And so like they, <clears throat> I remember kind of taking that as like, okay, like they sat down and they just said like, we want to write this letter. We want I want to write this book. I want to write this essay, whatever. And they were writing it as if you or I would write something. Um, but the, but the inspiration of that was Jesus. And so as they were writing these things, they were being spoken to in a different sort of like they were like deep in the word, deep in Bible study. And so when they were doing not they were studying the Bible, but you know what I'm saying? Like they were deep in that place. And so as they were writing things, what they were writing was accurate because it was being inspired by God. No, but not like, but not like you guys are saying dictation where like, you know, God was right there telling them what to write or possessing their body and moving the pen or the whatever. Uh, it wasn't anything like that, but more so that they were, I guess that's what I took away from it. And so I, I mean, I don't know any, any more than that, but I, I think that's, I think that's kind of like a, a passive answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about Along those lines? Because, because I never was at, given it specifically. Yeah. What about at Gordon Conwell? Like when you, cause I mean, that's like the like evangel, like that's a very popular evangelical seminary. So like, mm -hmm. did they, with inspiration on scripture, I feel like they, they probably took more to like a, the plenary uh, inspiration of scripture kind of thing. Well, Gordon Conwell has many different denominations that make up its student body. So I think a lot of those types of things, I think they, I mean, I don't remember that being discussed inherently. Okay. Anywhere specifically, I think it was more so assumed that you were the type of person that would say the Bible was in, in the inspired word of God. And I think that that was the terminology that they would have used. And I think how you got there may or may not have been something that they would have like, like that, that it, it wouldn't have made a difference, like how word. you got there. Um now, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I missed it. Like maybe I fell asleep that day in class or, <laughs> or had to work and wasn't in class that day or something. And maybe so if someone that I know went there is listening right now and you're like, dude, Marty is way off his rocker with that. then that's fine. But I just don't remember that being like a, a discussion point in any class. And then like people like I remember being I remember people arguing about baptism in class. I remember people arguing about women in ministry in class, uh, but I don't remember and like I think people it was just sort of like hey like if you like if you believe that the the word is the inspired word of God then that's the end of the discussion um sort word. of like you should know this already I, I don't know but okay well I think Gabe I thank you for writing this book because I, I I think it I think it I think it speaks into God speaks <laughs> it's <laughs> it speaks <laughs> into a discussion point that I think many people take for granted Yes. And they just kind of walk away, walk away from the idea that the Bible is the inspired word of God and just they say, OK, and like they're just supposed to know what that means, I guess. Um, so thank you for 
for spelling it out for us. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So the of the of the six arguments that you um, that you have in your your uh, book, I think three of them stood out to Marty and I as like this would be fun to to chat about. Um, so the three that we wanted to touch on, if if your game is the problem of evil, um, inerrancy, and our friend Greg Boyd. Um, so let's let's start with the problem of evil. Why does the problem of evil throw a wrench into things when it comes to the inspiration of scripture? Yeah, so this isn't typically something I've heard um, when I've, you know, I've read a number of books that um, about the idea of inerrancy. Um, and I let me let me say this real quick. Um, I'm not writing this book. Um, I, you know, we were talking about deconstruction, reconstruction and that camp earlier. I think one of the areas that people in those camps have not done deconstruction well is that they end up coming out of fundamentalism as jaded fundamentalists. And all they are doing now is reacting against and they're angry and they're hurt and reacting out of that hurt as anger um, towards fundamentalists. And they can't seem to see them as their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's not what I'm doing in the book. I'm not trying to say um, fundamentalists aren't Christians. I'm not. Um, um, I, I, I think I went through that season of life and I think I'm more so on the other side. But so I just want to say that all this stuff um for for people listening is is not me trying to beat up on my fundamentalist brothers and sisters so i think most of them are but they believe what they believe about the bible because they think it's the most faithful way to be uh most uh best way to be faithful to god or most faithful way to be faithful to god i don't know how to say that but so that being said um i think the problem of evil isn't typically addressed when we talk about inspiration that at least that i've come across um, but the problem of evil can basically be explained pretty simply. It's the idea that if God is all powerful and all loving, why doesn't God prevent evil and suffering in the world? If God is all powerful, um, then you would think God could prevent it. If God is all loving, you think God would want to prevent it. So the fact that God doesn't um, becomes a problem um, for anyone that believes in a, a God um, who is classically defined. Um, so... Um, so one of the things that I, I point out, and I, I started to hit on this earlier, uh, is that it's a problem because the same theology that is unable to answer the problem of evil in fundamentalist circles is also unable, or, or so, sorry, is also the same theology that is necessary for the popular notions of inspiration, the idea that the Bible is an errant word of God. Uh, essentially, God has to be able to control. And so uh, if God, if the Bible is going to be produced as God's inerrant word, there has to be some level of control over the authors in order to produce that text as uh, inerrant, as God's word. Otherwise, it would be interpreted. It would be mediated. It wouldn't be directly God's inerrant word. So there's a certain level of control that's necessary. But if God has that same level of control for inspiration, then it means that God has a certain level of control that God could probably prevent evil. Um, and then again, why doesn't God? So you, you fall back into the problem of evil. So that's the, that's essentially a brief overview of that section. Yeah, no, that's really good. And I, I agree with you. I haven't heard anybody use the problem of evil when talking about the inspiration of scripture, but I really, like, I was a big fan of that specific section. 
Um, just, I mean, cause I think you're right. <laughs> like I, I think, yeah, I think it's really good. I like it a lot. Um, and it, yeah, it also, I want to say this without it sounding mean, like it seems, it seems like it would almost be arbitrary for God to just have complete control over somebody to produce this inerrant text. And like, that's the one thing that God wanted to be correct. And like yeah. everything else, you know, evil, whatever, doesn't matter. Like that, does that, does that make sense? Like that just seems arbitrary. <laughs> like yeah, why, it, why would it be this text? Why not more important things like stopping Hitler? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's, I think that's exactly right. But even if we stuck with the text for a moment, we could ask, well, why didn't God produce the autographs? You know, we don't have any of the original autograph, the actual letter written by Paul to the Corinthians. We have copies of copies of copies. And if God, you know, classic uh, fundamentalist doctrine would say only the autographs are the inerrant word of God, which means we don't actually have the inerrant word of God. And so if God actually could control and did control to produce this uh, inerrant uh, word of God written down in a text, then why didn't God continue that level of control and give us the autographs um, or, you know, make a, do it on like a, you know, antimanium or something, you know, some sort of indestructible metal that we, we would still have those uh, today. Uh, but I think you're right. Um, that uh, I think the Hitler example is probably a better one in the sense of we should care more, I think about that than we, we should, you know, that we don't have the original autographs. Um, but yeah, that's a good point, Josh. Marty, any, any thoughts on the problem of evil and the inspiration of scripture? I hate the problem of evil. <laughs> That's why you should be. Well, actually, I don't, Gabe's not an open and relational person, I don't think. But no, no, I, yeah. I, I, I hate the problem of evil and just in, in general. And I, I think I think because not for my sake, but for the fact that it's a hang up for many people to find any relationship with Jesus at all. And so, like, and and so, I think people get to that place where they, you know, they lose someone, or something happens to them, or like something happens to them that doesn't make sense. And like, that's why Ord's work on the on the topic is so good because, like, it, it helps to explain that. And so many, if for somebody, um, and I've even though I wouldn't call myself open relational at all, um, I've used Ord's argument and discussion and discussing point on that for people that are in those places. And it, I've found that that feels and seems way more empathetic than like the whole, well, God's mysterious, (laughs) you know, well, God, you know, God's ways are in our ways or, you know, or of course way more empathetic than the whole, like, well, maybe that person, you know, wasn't praying hard enough, or maybe, maybe you haven't gone to, you haven't gone to church in a long time. Like maybe that's part of it, you know, like, I mean, that like that makes people feel awful, you know, it's like they feel terrible. And then like the common arguments turn it into this, like you had this thing happen to you and you're the problem. And (laughs) like, I'm going to shame you into, so yeah, I mean, I hate the problem of people for the fact that it pushes people away from Jesus so often because the church and when I say the church, I mean like the evangelical church. Um, I said a really difficult time finding ways to describe or talk to people about that when they have the legitimate question. You know, I remember this is slightly off. No, it's not. I remember when the tsunami hit 
Asia, like the massive tsunami and like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Um, people were like, well, a loving God wouldn't do that to like, wouldn't just kill all these people. And I remember people in the church saying, well, but those people probably weren't Christians. So like, mm. of course God would do that. And so talk about like taking a wedge and building it deeper and deeper and deeper into people, you know, making them feel worse and worse and worse about God. Um, you know, like using this like vengeful idea of God as there as like a, well, those people over there were probably Muslim or something else. And so like, of course God would kill them. And it's like, wait, what? Like <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing to say. And even being like steeped and rooted deep in evangelicalism, um, like at the time being a pretty, pretty brand new Christian uh, myself. Um, I remember in my mind, like, oh yeah, well, I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, it's, it's hard to hear. And so, but it kind of makes sense, I guess. So I, I guess that's my, my thing, like, like you were talking about the problem of evil and my idea in my way sucks because it drives people away from wanting to be around Jesus. And I think because we don't ever know how to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and Tom Ord says, he's said multiple <clears throat> times um, that this is the number one reason people give for not believing in God. And so what I tried to point out here is if your theology underlying your doctrine of biblical inspiration can't address the problem of evil adequately, then it's not an adequate doctrine of inspiration. Now, what I will say in addition to that is at the end of the day, and I think I say this at that end of the section, um, at the end of the day, no solution is going to be perfect, right? Um, and, and Tom would affirm um, that there is a level of, there is mystery, right? Um, I think he's more uncomfortable with mystery than I am. I tend to be much more Eastern Orthodox in my, my theology. So I'm probably a little bit more comfortable with mystery. Um, although I'm probably less uncomfortable with mystery than most Eastern Orthodox. Uh, but but as I, I do think that that is an issue that doc, uh, pro, um, doctrines of biblical inspiration need to address. And if they don't, then they're they're failing in a pretty big yep. aspect. Yeah. Well, I think the next argument that we'd want to just talk about briefly here um, is just the idea of inerrancy in scripture and um, kind of how that comes together uh, within what you're in within your book. Yeah. So uh, let me say this, because we've been throwing around the term evangelical a lot. Um, so I would actually make a distinction between evangelicals and fundamentalists. I was on um, a call with uh, uh, John Sanders um, for my podcast, and he said that essentially, um, I hope this was actually in the interview and not off topic, but anyway, he, I don't think this would be bad for me to tell people, but basically he said that fundamentalists have co-opted the term evangelical, and I think that's spot on. His, from a historical point of view, they're not the same. So, you know, if you think about, you know, um, uh, kind of Gregory Boyd's concentric circles, but in terms of the Protestant tradition as a whole, you have, you know, Protestantism that arose 500 years ago. You have evangelicalism that arose with um, George Whitfield, the Wesley brothers, and Jonathan Edwards um, 250 years ago. And then you have fundamentalism that arose 100, 150 years ago. So all fun, the way I like to say it is all fundamentalists are evangelical in a historical sense, and not all evangelicals are fundamentalists. And the, there's four kind of pillars 
that uh, David Bevington, who's a British church historian, uh, gives for uh, his definition of evangelicalism, which is kind of the base. People can disagree with that, but he's kind of got the starting definition. And it's crucicentrism, biblicism, uh, um, uh, conversionism, and social action. So the social action would include evangelism, social justice, the uh, which the evangelicals in the 19th century were big on. Um, crucicentrism is the cross-centered idea. Um, biblicism is the idea that the Bible has some sort of authority. It doesn't include inerrancy. Inerrancy didn't exist when evangelicalism arose. And then it also includes conversionism, the idea that you need to be converted. So whereas um, the five main pillars of fundamentalism are inerrancy, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, I think the virgin birth, miracles, and the deity of Christ. Well, out of those five, only one of those is brand new. Only one of those completely um, is a fundamental, uniquely fundamentalist trait, and that's inerrancy. So the doctrine of penal substitution goes back at least four or five hundred years, um, and then the rest are what all Christians, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, um, Protestants have believed, you know, going back, I think, to Jesus. But, um, but inerrancy is brand new. So when I say fundamentalist, I mean inerrancy, and that's why I'll, I make a distinction between evangelicals and fun. I go to an evangelical seminary. For, I'm not an evangelical. Let me say that. Um, I'm not a Protestant. Um, but um, I, I do think there is a pretty big difference there. And I want to be fair to evangelicals who don't believe in, in inerrancy. Um, and I think it's pretty messed up that fundamentalists have co-opted that word. Anyway, so that was kind of, <clears throat> that was a little bit of a rabbit trail. I told you I had ADHD. Um, but to actually get to your question, Marty, um, so, so that kind of being some of the framework to see all of this in, um, inerrancy is kind of the linchpin for, for fundamentalism in general, uh, but particularly their understanding of biblical inspiration. And, and one of the things I talk about in, in that section is that, um, although loosely defined inerrancy just means the Bible is without error, um, there are lots of nuances to that. Depending on what fundamentalist you talk to, they're going to, they're going to have a really different perspective on that. So like John Walton, who teaches the Wheaton, he's not going to say that um, Genesis 1 is literal and that it's inerrant and it's a literal meaning. He's going to say, well, if we took the Bible literally in the sense of what does it literally mean in its own historical context, you know, it, it, it has to do with ancient cosmology. It's not answering our modern questions, but he's still going to say the Bible's inerrant. Whereas maybe a more popular view um, is that the Bible is inerrant uh, in a literal sense for all of it. So it's a, it's inerrant in its theology, it's inerrant in its history, it's inerrant in its science um, and all those sorts of things. So there, so, so I, I tried to be nuanced and, and to explain that there are different variations of inerrancy. Ultimately though, I think all of them um, produce, I think there are multiple problems um, with inerrancy. And I talk about that in, in, the, in the book. Um, but I think the biggest problem is that if the Bible is an inerrant, then it has to be God. Yes, right? I loved that distinction that you made in that chapter, drawing the two together. Can you, but so for people who might be confused, it's like, okay, I don't, I don't see it. Can you just thread that, that line for us briefly? Yeah, so I will, um, I'll quote um, one of the people I quote in that section real quick, just to, to this is not, um, just to say that I'm not 
I'm not making stuff up, but then I will jump ahead to my Carl Bart argument, which is the main, the main piece. Uh, but so Matthew Barrett is a Southern Baptist uh, professor and scholar that teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And in his book, uh, God's Word Alone, uh, which is actually anachronistic. So it's part of the uh, Zondervan put in 2017, kind of as a 500 Protestant anniversary, put out a series on the five solas. And uh, he did the one on scripture, but she called it God's word alone, which is actually anachronistic because Luther did not believe the Bible is the word of God. So to say God's word alone is actually an anachronism. So if you watch Legends of Tomorrow, you know, you know what an anachronism, right? Right. So um, actually, that's where I got got a firm grasp of what that term means. So thanks to DC. Uh, but anyway, so Matthew Barrett in his book, that book on page, I think, 243, he says it is clear that for Jesus, God and scripture can be spoken of synonymously, demonstrating that scripture is the very word of God. We should not attempt to drive a wedge between the two. So you have this thing in fundamentalism, both modern fundamentalism. There's another book uh, edited by John MacArthur that has a bunch of uh, well-noted <clears throat> fundamentalists uh, arguing for inerrancy. And there are multiple places in that um, where I think John MacArthur in his section says that script when scripture speaks of god and it speaks of scripture sometimes it's unclear of which one is being referred to because it, it's speaking about them as the same thing essentially um and you also so you see that in some of the modern fundamentalists but you also see it in the the kind of bible or the original text of the fundamentalist movement that came out i think in 1917 they say very similar things that jesus and the bible essentially are, are the same thing that god and so they end up making bible a part of God. So we actually don't talk about John MacArthur on this podcast ever. Oh, I'm, I, I'm sorry. Is that like the F word? <laughs> I'm, totally, I'm totally kidding. Yeah. Keep, keep um, going. Sorry. I had to yeah. say. No, 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 no worries, man. Um, so no, I will say, so I think there are a lot of fundamentalists that are, have good intentions again, that are really trying to seek God. I think John Piper, I would, I would put in that category. I think his theology is effed up. But yeah, I think he's, you. but I think he's, he's trying to be faithful to God, right? John yeah. MacArthur has the spirit of the Antichrist. He's not <laughs> yes. trying to be faithful to God. He has all the no, fruits of Satan. So, <laughs> he's yeah. an asshole. so, you know, so I'm not being unfair to fundamentalists. I'm being, I think John MacArthur has the spirit. If by spirit of the Antichrist, we mean a spirit of anti-christ something that's anti-antithetical to who christ is i think that's he's got the fruits of the spirit but of the fruits of satan so anyway so so uh, i forgot where i was going with this so so anyway so fundamentalists make this claim essentially and 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 they're so explicit about it i i was i was doing research not only for this book but for my thesis um, about what fundamentalists think about the Bible. And I was so surprised how many times over and over and over again, they essentially said very explicitly that the Bible was God. So surprised. I thought they would be more implicit about it, but they were so, so explicit. God and scripture can be spoken of synonymously. I saw that time and time again. I saw a Trinitarian formula in MacArthur's edited book that was, a, and it was, wasn't by MacArthur, it was one, by the, one of the contributors that basically... Um, said that uh, the spirit is truth, the father is truth, the son is truth, and the Bible is truth. And, it, and, and there's more to that, but it basically made the Bible part of the Godhead. And I saw this over and over again. It's very explicit. 
So, so there's no doubting they do that. I don't think it's unfair. I know people might say it's unfair. That's not actually what they're doing. I think they've written it down as I'm describing it. Um, but the question is why, how do they get to that point? And so in uh, a, a further section, I think it's this, I think it's section five. I talk about Carl Bart. Um, now Carl Bart, um, my dog wrote this long systematic theology series called dogmatics and outline dogmatics, right? Because it was written by a dog, Carl Bart. Um, but anyway, he was, are you a, a dad? Are you a dad? Cause that was I'm, a super dad joke right there. I'm not <laughs> a dad, but I'm glad I named my dog Carl Bart. So I can do that. I have, you're, 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 you're a dog dad. I'm that a counts. dog dad. Yeah. Maybe, maybe one day, but, um, <laughs> So Karl Barth was a Swiss reformed theologian in the 20th century, big stuff, right? Um, and he says in one of his dogmatics, I think it's volume one, he essentially says that God's word, when God speaks, what God speaks is never separate from God's self. God is present in and of what is spoken of. Does that make sense? Um, and so, so, so that's basically, you know, we intuit this, right? If uh, Josh told me, or if Josh told Marty, right? If, uh, hey, Marty, um, I know you're moving this weekend, so I'm going to go help you move this weekend, okay, bro? Uh, I'll be there at eight o'clock or whatever, you know? I'm going to help you move all day. And then Josh, like, ducked out and didn't have a good excuse. Uh, Marty would be like, Josh is a douchebag and it's not really a man of his word, right? He, so, so we intuit that a person's word is not separate from themselves. It, it is indica it's indicating who that person's character is. So we would even say that about a liar. If Josh is known for being a liar and he gives you his word that he's going to help you move um, and he doesn't, well, really his word is still not separate from himself because who he is is a liar. And his word represented that. So a person's word is never separate from themselves. We, we intuit that. Um, so how much, and so Karl Barth's basically saying this with God. God's word is never separate from God's self. Whatever God speaks, God is present in what is said. Um, so I kind of take that uh, and use it as an argument for, um, if you say the Bible is the word of God, I'll get to that. I don't want to spoil it. But um, so basically, if, if God's word is never separate from God's self, right, then that means uh, that uh, the, the Bible, or sorry, not the Bible, God's word must, must also have the qualities or attributes of God. So if God doesn't change, um, then, and, and God is eternal, then that means that, and, and God's word is never separate from self, God's self, that means the Bible also must be eternal. And if the Bible is, we know the Bible is, you know, 2,500, 3,000 years old, depending on which book, you know, 2,000 years old, whatever. Um, so we know it came into existence. If God doesn't really change and God's word is never separate from God's self and the Bible is God's word, then God changed because at some point God did something new. And it also would mean that the Bible is, it, it would be eternal, right? Uh, so, so basically the argument is, Whatever you give the term or title word of God to, it has to be God. And there is something in the Christian tradition that we have done that with historically. Jesus. Jesus is the eternally spoken word of God, right? Um, and so that's kind of the, um, and I probably say it better in the um, 
in the actual text. I'm a much better written communicator, I think, than a verbal communicator. But um, but that's essentially the argument. If God's word is never separate from God's self, uh, that means it has to have the same attributes as God. It would be eternal. It would be changeless since the Bible obviously came into existence. It would mean God changed because God did something new um, and also that it would be eternal and therefore it would be God. So God's word has to be Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. And that fits nicely into my Anabaptish uh, perspectives of Jesus as the ultimate revelation of who God is. Jesus is the word of God. And I think historically, like you demonstrating your book, um, the church has believed that and spoken of that as well. Um, but the, the last thing, as far as arguments go, before we jump into this idea of essential kenosis, um, and I'm going to try to be like, oh, uh, what's the, the phrase when you do like good listening skills, you like recite something back to somebody. What I I'm hear gonna... you saying is right. So yeah, yeah. When I read your section on Greg Boyd, what I heard you saying is this: basically, Greg makes this argument in his book uh, Cross Vision, or if you want the bigger version, Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Um, that basically, if we want to know what God is like, you know, the ultimate revelation is is Jesus, but specifically Jesus. Uh, crucified and so that's the ultimate revelation of god and so then he takes that and applies it to scripture and says anytime that the bible doesn't look like uh jesus crucified maybe something else is going on but specifically he talks about how the cross is both beautiful and ugly it's um ugly because it's demonstrating the evil and wickedness of humanity killing the creator Uh, but it's also beautiful in that god allows allows i'm emphasizing that word for a reason allows that to happen and so then greg applies that to scripture and so say something like the canaanite genocide he would say god is stooping down uh to the uh writers you know level so to speak and it's again it's the idea of uh the cruciform hermeneutic the the canaanite genocide bit is people being really ugly and shitty and not God. And God allows that to happen with an inspiration. And what I hear you saying is you take issue with the word allows when it comes to Greg's argument. Did I get that? You did. did. You summed up his view, I think, pretty well. And and yeah, and that's exactly what I take issue with. I love Greg. Um, I I say Greg. I don't know. I've never met him in person. He's very nice on email a couple times. He does seem nice from, you know, things I've listened to him about. Um, but his book, Cross Vision and uh, Inspired Imperfection, I think are some of the best books that I've read on the Bible. Um, <clears throat> so I highly recommend those books. Uh, where, yeah, where I would have a problem. And it wasn't actually my idea to critique Great Boyd. This was Tom Ord's idea. Way he to was go, like, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say? I said, way, way to go, Tom. Yeah. And I was, when Tom told me that I should, you know, critique him on his accommodation theory, I was like, you want me to take on the bull? I'll get the horns, man. You know, take on the bull, get the horns. Um, but, uh, but so it wasn't on my, it wasn't on my idea. Great. Just hearing that. Um, but it, it kind of the example I use in the book. Um, if uh, my friend has a daughter and I actually had a friend in mind, but none of this is actually true of the friend. It's just a hypothetical argument. But if my friend has a daughter, And the daughter thinks that her daddy wants her to go and kill the cat. And he knows about it as a loving father. He's probably, I know him. He's going to go say, Hey, I don't want you to kill the cat. Right. Um, But 
if he chooses not to, if he chooses not to kill the cat, or sorry, if he, if he chooses not to tell his daughter that he doesn't want her to kill the cat and she kills the cat, well, then she he's culpable for being able to prevent that travesty, um, but choosing not to um, for, for whatever reason. So that's kind of what I think the word allow implies. So I think the accommodation theory is spot on. You know, I don't have a problem with accommodation theory. You know, Greg isn't the first one to propose. It goes back hundreds and hundreds of years to the early church. Uh, the, the issue, I think, is I think we need to add the word necessary to it, that God necessarily accommodates. So it's not that God told or it's not that God allowed the ancient Israelites to think he was a moral monster and just allowed them to think that. But it's that through, that God cannot control and so God necessarily accommodates. We, God can't just override our cultural embeddedness and, and, and show us, hey, you're wrong. And God can't just uh, prevent us from, from doing, uh, writing those things about God. Uh, <clears throat> and so that's where I would say, I think the problem for using the word allow rather than necessary uh, comes up. Yeah, right on, man. Um, I liked it. I thought that was a, a healthy critique and it was fun too, especially because I love both Greg and Tom. And then to like, to see you interacting with both of them and bring them together is, I mean, for my nerd self, it was a ton of fun. So yeah. Did you ever I, get to ask him what he thought about my critiques if he'd read them? No, I haven't. So I haven't, I haven't talked to him since we were texting. Mm. Um, yeah, but I'll have to ask him and see what he thinks. Yeah, I try, I'm trying to get him to endorse the book. So <clears throat> that'd be cool. I have to. Plus, Greg is on. an insane metal drummer. Did you know that? Yeah, he's really good. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard him talk about that on his podcast. <laughs> cool. So I guess we're going to kind of make the shift over into, um, I guess, a lot of the big portion of your book. Um, so you give a pretty compelling case for applying essential kenosis theology to the inspiration of scripture. Um, so for listeners who aren't familiar with essential kenosis, can you give us a primer of what that is and how that fills in? Yeah. So essential kenosis, otherwise known as the uncontrolling of God or uh, God can't theology, uh, is, is known and identified with the person Thomas J. Ord, who's a theologian philosopher in the Nazarene Wesleyan tradition, um, who's also an open and relational the theologian. Um, and as you mentioned, Josh, I'm not an open theist, although I'd consider myself a relational the theologian. Uh, but that's kind of who it's associated with. Essential kenosis is basically the idea of this. So uh, we start with God cannot act outside of God's nature, right? Um, you know, we see this in the New Testament where it says God cannot lie. God, uh, when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful because God cannot deny God's self. Um, you know, there's all these philosophers would say God can't do anything that's illogical. So God can't make a stick longer than itself. God can't make two plus two equal five and so forth. So we say that God can't do some things and those things are outside of God's nature. So God cannot act outside of God's nature. So then we ask, okay, well, what is God's nature? Well, we would, uh, people in the central kenosis camp would say, well, God's nature is love. So that means God can't do anything outside of God's nature. Um, so God must always be loving. Then we add a further descriptor and we say God's love is uncontrolling because we wouldn't say controlling or coercion is a loving thing to do. 
right? So if a spouse is controlling or coercive, we wouldn't say that's a loving spouse. So we say that love is inherently uncontrolling. When we say love, we mean it's uncontrolling. So if God's very nature is uncontrolling love and God can't act outside of that nature, that means God can only be uncontrolling love, can only do things that are representative and characteristic of that nature. So um, God, it, and we will also say that God, it, it is loving to give freedom. That it, if God can't control, that means God necessarily gives freedom. It's not something God chooses to do. It's something that's part of who God's nature is. So God gives freedom necessarily. And since God can't control, he can't retract that. Um, and so this is a essentially a, a solution of the problem of evil or a particular rendition of it. Um, if, if God can't control because God necessarily gives freedom, can't act outside of God's nature, then when Hitler killed six million of my dad's side of the family, then, uh, then God's not culpable because God couldn't prevent it. God couldn't override Hitler's freedom. Um, but also God didn't cause it. Uh, so, so that's kind of the gist of essential kenosis. Um, Tom does a great job, I think, rooting it in the New Testament and rooting it in um, some of the Protestant Wesleyan traditions, so like Jacob Arminius and Wesley. And I, I deal with both of those as well. But it also, I'm more, much more interested in early church history than Tom is. And so I tried to also root it in some of the early theologians. Um, there's a letter to Dionysius um, that's written somewhere, I think, between 120 and 200, where he says, I'm trying to see if I can find the quote. Um, here it is. And he says, and was his coming, talking about Christ, as a man might suppose, in power, in terror, and in dread? Not so. It was in gentleness and humility as a man sending his royal son. So he sent him as God. He sent him as man to men. He sent him and that because he was fain to save us by persuasion and not by compulsion for there is no compulsion found with God. His mission was no pursuit or hounding of us. It was an invitation to us. It was in love. So there is no compulsion found in God. This is written in the second century. So this, so some of essential kenosis at least has seeds of historical precedence. We might not say that, you know, the authors in the New Testament or the author of this letter to Dionysius, uh, we might not say that they have a fully blown essential kenosis theology, but there's certainly seeds of it there. Um, I also connect it to, to um, uh, Gregory Anissa, so a couple, moving a couple centuries forward in the fourth century, he says at the end of, or at the beginning of his book, um, A Life of Moses, he says that God, essentially that God can't act outside of God's nature. Um, and Origen says this, this was pretty on point. Most, I think from what I understand, most of the early church fathers, at least in the East, didn't think God could act outside of God's nature. So, or, or so, um, uh, Gregory Anissa, says that God's very nature is unlimited goodness. So God is unlimited to act within God's own nature, which so he's unlimited to be good, but God cannot act outside of God's nature. Um, therefore, God can't do evil. And that's not a limit on God. It would be like saying a horse, uh, it's a horse is limited because it can't fly. You wouldn't say a horse is limited because it can't fly, because that's not part of God's nature. That's not part of the horse's nature. Horse doesn't have wings. It's, it's not part of its nature to fly. So you would never say, oh, that horse is limited because it can't fly. That would be nonsense. In the same way, you wouldn't say God is limited because God can't act outside of God's nature. Well, God's nature is uncontrolling love and God can't commit evil. That's a good thing. So, so that's kind of the uh, overview of essential kenosis and kind of how I try to connect it to 
um, some of the early uh, church fathers. Yeah, right on. That's helpful. And, and so listeners, if you want to kind of dive into some more of that essential kenosis stuff and you haven't uh, listened to us before, maybe you're new, we've done a few episodes, I believe three with Tom, and we talked about the uncontrolling love of God. Uh, we did an episode about God can't, and we even went in and did uh, like a Q&A specifically around the ideas in, in God can't. So if that's something that you're interested in, listeners, to dive deeper into the idea that Gabe was just putting forth, highly recommend uh, checking out those episodes. Just go back in the archives. They're around. <laughs> They're around. And I'm yeah. sure Tom will be hanging out with us again in the future. We love him. Um, yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, very much so. Cool. So um, now that we have this idea of essential kenosis, if we were to apply it to the inspiration of scripture, we get some kind of participatory theology. And uh, yeah, so w- what does that look like? What, what does this look like applied to inspiration? Yeah, so uh, some of the stuff I was reading early on in seminary, um, it, what, it was, uh, there was an author named Benjamin Somner, who's a Jewish Hebrew Bible scholar um, at the Jewish Theological Seminary of uh, New York, I think. Um, might be of America, but he wrote a book called Revelation and Authority, and where he puts forth this participatory theology of Revelation. He traces it from the Hebrew Bible or the Torah, specifically the first five books of the Bible, all the way up through 20th century Judaism. And I remember reading that book, and I, at this point, I was familiar with Tom's work. I'd read it. I remember reading that book and saying, "This is the implication of essential kenosis. If God is uncontrolling, um, like Tom." proposes then then this is i think the theology of revelation we get so the way i like to describe what a participatory theology of revelation is is i like to go to the example that somner uses uh, and i think it's a great example um, in exodus i think it's 19 so moses it's the sinaitic revelation that's happening all the israelites have just come out of egypt they're at the, the foot of mount sinai the revelation's happening so moses approaches the mountain that's covered in thick darkness and then god speaks out of that darkness and it says um in the nrsv which is the translation that a lot of scholars use and that uh it's kind of the translation we most go to in the episcopal church which is my denomination Uh, that's the one that jesus wrote himself right uh, yeah yeah exit yeah nrsv jesus wrote it himself yeah 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 you're spot on man Um, So in uh, verse 19 of chapter 19, it says, Moses would speak and God would answer in thunder. So some translations, instead of thunder, they say voice. The Hebrew word behind that is kol, Q-O-L. And so the base that you can translate kol either as voice or thunder, depending on the context. And if it's voice, then the implication is that Jesus is, or not Jesus, sorry, that um, we'll get to that. I'm jumping ahead. That, that. God is speaking to Moses in audible, understandable language and and words. So I guess God would be speaking in Hebrew. Um, But if it is translated as thunder, then it means that what is being spoken of is is inherently interpreted. It's a sound that has to be interpreted. And, And I would actually make the case that all things are interpreted. So even if God did speak in Hebrew language, it still has to be interpreted. You know, he doesn't just hear it. And it's just like when my wife tells me something, I don't always understand it perfectly. I, I interpret it. Sometimes I have better interpretations. Other times I have really bad interpretations and I get into trouble. But um, but I think thunder and, and Somner kind of 
Sumner points out one that, you know, the Torah, it's noted by scholars was, is at least, you know, comes from at least four different schools or traditions, four different sources, at least. And the E source, which is the source that uh, Psalm, or Exodus 19 is from, that I just read from, uh, is the one that has this kind of participatory notion of theology. Deuteronomy actually argues against it. Um, so the Torah isn't unanimous on this, but you see some of these participatory theologies in Exodus and the e-source actually carry through, through the Hebrew Bible. And again, through rabbinic and medieval Judaism all the way to 20th century Judaism. And that's what Sondra does a great job of tracing. But so there are good, good reasons to understand um, that we should translate coal as uh, thunder. Um, and one of the, the reasons is because if you look at the uh, surrounding ancient literature surrounding uh, the Israel, um, say specifically the Ugaritic text, which the Ugarit was a, a neighbor to the north of Israel. They have a, uh, a uh, the lang their language is very, it's a relative of Hebrew, very similar in the same way that if we look at the word in a Hebrew shalom, which you know peace, or uh, in Arabic it's salam, um, which the peace of God be upon you. These words mean the same thing, and they're similar, right? Shalom and salam sound similar, right? So they're they're what's called a cognate. They're related. They're uh, and not only are they related, but these two words mean the same thing. And they sound similar. So uh, in the Ugaritic text, um, in the Epic of Baal, you know, Baal, the bad god from the Hebrew Bible that the Israelites were always going and worshiping, uh, in his epic written by the Ugaritics, it talks about, it uses the word QL, it translate, literates as, which is the Hebrew, which is the Ugaritic cognate of the word kol. So it's the same word. It sounds similar, QL, QOL, very similar. Um, and the way it uses it in this text is through parallel uh, poetry. In parallel poetry, we also find this in the Hebrew Bible. Lots of ancient Near Eastern texts use parallel poetry. The first line says something, and the second line says it again, but in different words, re rephrased sometimes. And so basically, whatever the second line is saying, it's saying it's just rephrasing what the first line is about. So in this poetry, uh, from Ugr the Ugaritic Epic of Baal, it, it uses, it talks about the voice of God. And then the next line, it says the thunder of God. So it's using thunder and voice interchangeably. And we see this in the Hebrew Bible. We see this in some of the Psalms. And you can go look at my book if you want to <laughs> find out where those are um, or read Benjamin Somner's book. But um, another place that we see this in that I thought when I came across this, I was blown away. And I talk about this in the book. So if Somner traces this participatory theology from the E source in the Torah, all the way through the Hebrew scriptures, um, through rabbinic Judaism, medieval Judaism, all the way up to 20th century Judaism, and all the New Testament or Jewish texts, might we find this Jewish idea in the Jewish New Testament? Maybe. And in John 12, I would say yes, John 12, um, uh, let's start at 28. Uh, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And then the narrator says, then a voice came from heaven. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And then Jesus, you know, goes on to interpret what just happened. So the, the two things that we see in that is one, that when God speaks, there are multiple interpretations, right? We're inherently interpreting. So some people thought it was an angel. Other people thought it was uh was thunder. And then Jesus is like, no, this is my father, bro. And he explains it. Um, but the other thing is that voice and thunder are used interchangeably again. 
they heard a voice from heaven and it sounded like thunder. So that idea of God's voice is thunder is in the New Testament, is in John chapter 12, verse uh, 28. Um, so, so this idea of participatory theology, um, I'm not saying that we necessarily find a full-blown view of it, but so that's how I would explain participatory theology. Um, and, and well, let me add this to it. So that's kind of the idea of coal translated as thunder. Um, it has to be interpreted. So the idea is that a divine revelation happens, right? Something was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. But what the, the scriptures that are produced from that experience are an interpretation, a, res, a human response or a human interpretation to what was revealed. Um, and so that, that essentially is the participatory theology of revelation. And I say, if God cannot control, this is, this is what's necessary because God can't control our interpretations. As humans, we inherently interpret things. God can't control that. Therefore, what we receive uh, when we write scripture is a human response to revelation. Um, if I may go a little bit further, um, I get, I think it's in chapter four, I start to talk about, um, I'll just quickly do this because I know you have other questions, but in chapter four, I talk, start to talk about uh, Jesus. Um, does he have, I, I don't argue or even ask the question, does Jesus have a participatory theology of revelation? That would require a whole book and a bunch of research I didn't have time for. So I look, instead I looked at how does Jesus interpret scripture? And how does he read it? How does he handle it? Um, and does that congrue better with participatory theologies of revelation? The answer I give is, is, is yes. So that kind of gives us permission to accept this participatory theology of revelation. Um, but one of the things I talk about um, in chapter, I guess that's four, is that uh, I start to talk about that Jesus is revelation. So Karl Barth doesn't make a, he doesn't say revelation and Jesus are distinguished. He says, Jesus is revelation, right? Um, and I think the best of the, in my biased opinion, the best of the Christian tradition has never separated Jesus from revelation. Jesus is revelation, right? God's revelation is never separate from God's self. It's always part and present of who God is. Jesus is God's revelation. Um, so when, um, so when revelation happens, um, what that's Jesus, that's the word of God, the, the son of God, the second person, the Trinity, and, and our responses to it um, are what produced as scripture, tradition, so forth. Now, here's the thing. In, in, Hebrew, in, in Jewish theology, there's this concept of heavenly Torah versus earthly Torah, right? The rabbis argued about this. Um, there's this idea that there's a Torah in heaven and a Torah on earth. And, and they, they argued, well, well, to what extent are these similar? And uh, some of them said, well, they're exactly the same. Other of, others said that, no, it's just an interpretation. It's a human response an imperfect shadow or copy of the heavenly Torah. I use those words very, very uh, intentionally. So hold on to that. Um, so the argument I make is that Jesus is heavenly Torah, of which the earthly Torah is a representation or human response to. And where I get off on saying, making such a claim is in, uh, again, a Jewish idea of heavenly Torah versus earthly Torah might we expect that this Jewish idea that appeared in rabbinic Judaism a couple hundred years after the New Testament, might we expect this also to be in Jewish texts in the first century, say the New Testament? Well, yes, Gabe. Yeah, I think we might expect that. So in, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter one, and I actually don't talk about chapter one in the book. Um, a friend of mine, Keith Giles, pointed this out to me. Big Dumbo over here didn't think about this. But in, in chapter one, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. 
And when we get to the chapters I did talk about, eight through 10, um, you get this idea. Uh, it says that the, the tabernacle or the temple were a shadow, a sketch, a copy of the thing that was in heaven. Uh, and it also uses this language uh, to speak about the Torah. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says, since the law has only a writing of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities. So the law, the, the Torah, and the, the tabernacle or temple are shadows, copies of the things in heaven. And in chapter 1 of Hebrews, this is Jesus is the exact representation of God. If Jesus is the exact representation of God, and he's the son that was sent from heaven, then fool, who do you think the heavenly Torah is? It's Jesus. Jesus is the heavenly Torah. The earthly Torah is the shadow or copy of the thing that's in heaven. So I think this idea of heavenly Torah versus earthly Torah is somewhat, you know, who knows if it's a full-blown heavenly Torah, earthly Torah theology, but I think it's somewhat in the, uh, the, the letter to the Hebrews. Um, I'll just stop there. No, that's, it's wonderful. The Jesus centrality is like fantastic, man. Like that's the, I mean, honestly, the, so the reason that I even like went down this road in essential kenosis and open relational theology, the likes is because of Jesus, like Jesus, changed everything because i moved from what well, we talked about the start of this episode this bible-centered theology uh which most christians hold to um and instead said okay scratch that for a second hold to. fundamentalists that's yeah. that's yeah. yes 100 percent fun uh fundamentalists hold to um yeah not most christians in my experience yeah, most and christians, Orthodox, nope not at all yeah 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 so um Thank you for catching me on that. Um, no uh, da, 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 shit. Sorry anyway, throwing you off. No, you're tracks. you're good. Uh, Jesus is my homeboy. That's the the gist of it. But like, it just that's that's when things shifted for me. That's when it started to make sense. This idea that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of of who God is. I mean, Paul even talks about this too. You know, Paul says that like we only saw things like dimly, like through mm-hmm. a dimly lit mirror, or or whatever language he used um and then john goes on to say some really radical stuff like you know no one has seen the father um until they've seen the person of jesus or even he said like moses through moses came the law but through jesus came grace and truth i think that's an interesting uh back and forth there too a juxtaposition they're saying here's this thing the law but truth (laughs) yeah yeah came through the person of Jesus, the revelation. So it's wonderful. And so the, the, I don't know, for me, it, it just all makes sense in my mind so much like this, the uh, applying essential kenosis to the inspiration of scripture and this participation language is just wonderful. Like for me, it's like, we're like, like God is inviting us or, or, or the Bible is, is this like beautiful story of people interacting with the one that Jesus called Yahweh and then like Jesus shows up and is like, this is like, this is the gist of it. Like this is yeah, yeah. the actual revelation. Um, and then as a Christian, I feel like we get to be caught into that, that tradition, that, you know, with tradition of wisdom, that interaction uh, with God um, continues today. That, that revelation continues today, um, I guess, mediated by the person of Jesus or whatever. Um I don't know. I just, I get excited because I think your book kicks ass. Um, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then also 
Um, on a side note, like it, I wish I would have read it while I was uh, writing this um, article essay thing for one of those like collab books that Tom mm-hmm. edits together. Yeah, yeah. Because I just I wrote about um, salvation as participation with God. Mm, um, deosis. Exactly. And so like this, I don't know, it all ties together in my mind that I feel like my ADHD brain like connects all these different things. And then people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, and since you also have ADHD, I'm, I'm sure you experienced that as well. (laughs) That's it. Okay. So that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because people have a very disciplinary focus to where, you know, this is in its own category. This is in its own category and they don't ever cross pollinate. Whereas like, I don't know if it's my ADHD or my personality or whatever, but maybe you can, you know, relate to that. And it sounds like you can. It's like, I see all these disparate theologies, participatory theology over here, Jesus-centered theology, theosis, you know, uh, essential kenosis, all these different things. The Bible is not the word of God, Jesus is the word of God. I see all how they connect. And that's what I tried to do in the book is kind of make all those connections. Um, and I hope that kind of comes across in the book. And I think that's why the book is unique, not only because it's the first book, explaining biblical inspiration from an essentially canonic point of view but also because it crosses a lot of interdisciplinary boundaries um in a way that a lot of people don't make those connections yeah no dude a hundred percent i can relate like when i was still a pastor and i would preach sermons the biggest critique that i would always get is like you know afterwards or when, when we're talking about it um the head pastor or, you know, the executive pastor, we'd have these conversations be like, Josh, you have to remember the things that you connect in your brain, other people don't. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, you're, you're making all of these assumptions and assuming that people see all these connections, but they don't. And so like, the you, line. you have to, exactly. And so I think you nail it in your book because you do draw the line. Like you, I mean, I think you killed it. Like, honestly, it, it, it um like a dead horse that i didn't want to come back as a zombie right did you yeah. read that footnote <laughs> i didn't read that footnote but oh man you missed I love out it. man i had little I jewels did. in there like that i know so i'll i'll admit publicly on air that often i don't read footnotes oh, um, man. in unless it's like a tangent and and i know that's where a lot of great stuff is like pete ends puts an insane amount of ridiculous stuff in his footnotes as well so i gotta start doing that <laughs> yeah i you'll have to go back i think it's in like the last chapter i'm talking about implications and i mentioned okay. that the bible is not the word of god and in the footnote i said i know i've beaten this like a dead horse but i want to make sure the horse doesn't come back as a zombie horse and kill us all yeah that's good yeah yeah i like so. it that's a quality yeah. footnote yeah listeners thanks man should, listeners should purchase your book specifically for that footnote alone if nothing else just that. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, I also put in like where, when there's words I use that I don't think the normal person is familiar with, I, I define those in the footnotes and I have a glossary. Yeah. The glossary was super helpful. Yeah. In the back. That's cool. Um, well, I guess, geez, cause I feel like we could keep, keep talking. Do you, do you have any more questions? I'd love to talk about inspiration. I didn't, I didn't actually get around to inspiration very much. Right. Yeah. So yeah. let's, let's go there drop it like it's hot in regards to inspiration i'm gonna do some theological twerking here so you get ready you know yeah theological Uh, twerking it's what all the kids are doing now nowadays all the kids are doing so um i will say this there is one aspect the theology of what i'm about to describe is in the book 
there are a couple things that I'm about to describe that uh, elaborations of the theology that aren't in the book that I've come to articulate after I wrote the book, unfortunately. Um, and some of that was because I wrote my thesis on origins via scripture. And that was amazing. Um, origin is the man. And uh, so there were things about what I'm about to say that came from that that aren't in the book. But again, the theology is in the book. So this is extra. That's why you listen to podcasts, get the extra bit, right? The extra bit. The extra bit. So uh, so second to be through 316, people might say, well, that's so clear. That's It's saying the Bible is the word of God. But if you look at it, it says all scripture is God-breathed or God-inspired. It doesn't actually say God's word. People, I think, infer, oh, God-breathed, that means it, it comes out of the mouth of God. It's God's word. Um, but that's not necessarily clear. And here are some of the reasons. So in, in chapter one, I think in section four, I talk about the broadness of the use of the term inspiration. And this is where I get into some of this stuff specifically. But um, in the in New Testament studies <clears throat> or in any sort of studying of ancient literature, the way you figure out what a word means is by its use, right? You do that with any field, really. So when I say um, gubalin, which is a word I made up, uh, in order to understand what I mean by that, you pay attention to how I'm using it. So if I use gubalin, you know, when we're clinking drinks, getting wasted or whatever, and good craft beer, and uh, uh, I, you know, I say gubalin, you might think, oh, it's a, it's a, it's something you say when you clink drinks and you're having a good time or whatever. But my, my point is that words only have meaning based off how we use them. We create words as human beings and we give them meaning, and they're and the meanings change based off how we use them. So if you're a, a New Testament scholar, you're going to look at the word that we translate as God breathed or God inspired in 2 Timothy. You're going to ask, is this found anywhere else in 2 Timothy? And if it is, you're going to look, how is it being used in 2 Timothy? And that will shine light on what it means. Unfortunately, we don't have that word in anywhere else in 2 Timothy. So next, they're going to look at, um, any, they're going to look at the rest of the New Testament. Is this word used anywhere else in the New Testament? If so, how's it used? That's going to shine light on what its meaning is. Unfortunately, it's not in the New Testament. So we're going to look at Greco-Roman literature of the first century and so forth, and Jewish literature, other Jewish literature of the, of the first century. And we're going to say, okay, how is this used? Where is it used? And, and therefore, it shines light on what it means. Unfortunately, it's this word doesn't show up anywhere else in the Greco-Roman literature, the Jewish literature, anywhere else in the New Testament, anywhere else in 2 Timothy. The reason is because 2 Timothy, the author, is a badass, and like me, he makes his own words up. So he's the first person that we can tell that made this word. So that makes it really hard to figure out how it's being used. It's used one time, the entire New Testament, entire Jewish literature of the time, entire Greco-Roman. So we can't just say, oh, this means it's God's word. It's, we don't have enough evidence of how it's used in practice to, to say that. And the first time, really, that we start to see this word used outside of the New Testament is with the church fathers. So I think Clement uses this in his letter to the Corinthians saying that his letter is inspired by God. Um, but that was probably written around 90 or so. Um, and then in second, the second century, in the third century, in the fourth century, this term gets used. So the church fathers are the first people that start using this term. Um, so really, if we want to understand what this term is, we have to go to them. How are they using it? And the way they, they, they so one, um, spoiler alert, the 66 books in the Protestant canon isn't the canon of all Christians. And, and technically, and I say this, I think in a footnote, there is no such thing as biblical canon. There's no such thing. 
canon as a term wasn't used uh, to uh, in, in reference to the Bible to like the 17th century, I think. Um, it meant originally the rule of faith, which the creeds are a form of the rule of faith, right? Um, and so, but there was no council, you know, Dan Brown's book and movie, you know, The Da Vinci Code, where a bunch of white guys to get together and they decide these are the books that are going to be the Bible. One, there were no white people to counsel Nicaea. Athanasius was a black dwarf. So he's a black dude, probably from Northern Sudan. So, and everyone else was like Turkey, Syria, so forth. So a bunch of brown people. So Council of Nicaea, hashtag no whites. You know, I want to make a t-shirt. Um, so one, Dan Brown gets that wrong. Two, um, the Council of Nicaea didn't decide what books would be in the canon. There's never been an ecumenical council that I'm aware of, at least not in the first four ones, that uh, they decided these are going to be the books in our canon. And obviously Martin Luther is like, Mm, I'm not cool with these other books that the church has been reading for, you know, for like ever. So I'm going to get rid of those. I'm just going to do my 66 canon book and even question books like James and Revelation and, and so forth. And so um, the idea <laughs> of canon, is not a thing. It's not a thing. And even today, the Protestants have 66 books, Catholic have 70 something books, Eastern Orthodox have 80 something books. Right. So anyway, canon is not a thing, but um there are books, I would say, that being said, I would say there are some books that are, canon and scripture are not the same thing. That's something we need to distinguish. I would say there are, there are books that are legitimately scripture and books that are legitimately not. So I wouldn't call the Gnostic Gospels Christian scripture. I would say those are heresy. Um, and I think there are good reasons to, to reject Gnosticism and so forth. That's a tangent. We don't need to go into that. But um, so all that being said, when so the books that the, the, the uh, early church read, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Bible, had a lot more books than Protestants, including their Old Testament canon. But a lot of those books were called inspired, as well as creeds got called inspired, uh, bishops got called inspired, uh, monks and nuns got called inspired. So all these different things are inspired. So if we think that God inspired is synonymous, used interchangeably with God's word, then we have to sit and, and we think that that's what the early church meant by it. Then when they say that creeds are God's inspired, they're saying the creeds are God's word. They're saying that bishops are God's word. They're saying that uh, um, monks and nuns are God's word. But if you read those texts where they say these things are inspired, and you quickly, you know, use that interchangeably to see, oh, does this make sense? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, they're not calling the creeds or bishops or whatever, or nuns. They're not calling these God's word. So clearly the way they use God inspired does not mean God's word. Okay. So that's the first thing. So then you have to ask, okay, well, it doesn't mean God's word. What does it mean? So Gabe, I don't know if you can hear us, but you got froze, dude. It's a very nice photo, by the you way. We need to go to Genesis. There's two texts, I think. We no. Okay, I'm back. Where did I end? All right, you're back. So you said you were about to make a really big point, and then you froze like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so start with the... Ah! Yeah, and then we'll edit that Where, bit What out. did I get? What was the last thing I said? Uh... What's it about the um, you were about to say you were like, and so if this if this is true about how they were using this word and we don't know, then it has to mean something. So, yeah. So I think what I was saying was that uh, if they didn't use the Bible, if they didn't use the word uh, God inspired uh, interchangeably with God's word, that's not what they meant by that. Right. Right. That's where I was. OK. Yes. Um, if that's not what they meant by that. OK, well, what does God inspired mean then? 
-hmm. And there are two texts that I think we need to look to Genesis and uh, Matthew 5, 17. We'll start with Genesis. In Genesis, the creation of man, there are actually two, we, we don't pick this up, but there are actually two parts of the creation of man. God forms Adam from the dust of the ground, which form you can think of as create. Form means create. Um, so uh, God forms Adam or creates Adam from the dust of the ground, but he's not yet a living being. The second part that happens is that God breathes God's spirit, the life of God into Adam, right? So if God breathes God's life into Adam, who is the life of God? Christ. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and life. Jesus is life. So there's two acts of the creation of Adam. One, he's created or formed from the dust of the ground. Two, only then does he become a living being when the spirit of God breathes God's life into him. So Genesis, or sorry, 2 Timothy and so, and remember, hold on to this, that Jesus is life that's breathed into Adam by the spirit of God. Um, Genesis, or sorry, second Timothy three sixteen doesn't say all scriptures God formed or God created. Doesn't say that part. So it's only using the second part of the creation of Adam's story from Genesis. It says all scriptures God breathed. Okay. Keep that in mind. Um, and then we get to Matthew 5.17. And in Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, I'm not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And a few verses later, he seemingly contradicts himself. He quotes text from the Old Testament Bible, uh, from, from the Torah. And he says, you have heard it as said, but I'm telling you something different. So he seems to contradict himself. And the way I reconcile that, is, you know, from earlier, I say in the book, uh, if Jesus is the heavenly Torah, which the earthly Torah is a, a reflection of, then what he's speaking about is himself. He is the, the, the law that will not be removed. Um, so he's not actually contradicting himself and it makes sense what he's doing. But also there's another thing that I think Jesus is doing and that, that we need to understand uh, uh, second Timothy in light of, and this is, and this isn't in the book, sorry guys, but this is the metaphor of the jelly donut. Okay. <laughs> Keep the jelly yes. donut in mind. So Jesus in Matthew 5, 17, again, all I've come not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. The word fulfill in Greek, the Greek word behind that that we translate is palero, which also means to make full of or to fill. So, but we typically translate, we always translate it as fulfill. But I think we have reason to think that no, 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 no. Maybe we should translate it differently. And here's the thing. So in Origen's commentary on the book of Matthew, when he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount in this passage, he starts to describe scripture as a, uh, he uses the metaphor of a net as scripture. So scripture is the net of which before Christ came, the net was yet to be filled. And then he quotes, he cites Matthew 5, 17. So Origen in the third century seems to understand this Greek word palero behind what we translate as fulfilled in 517, seems to understand that as to fill rather than fulfill. So then if we translate Matthew 517 as, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fill them, that's something very different. So, okay, keep that in mind. Jesus has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fill them. And remember from second Timothy is pointing back to the Genesis story. The second part where God breathes the life of God into Adam creating a living being. So in second Timothy three 16, keeping both those in mind, what we see is the jelly donut scripture is the donut and Jesus is the jelly filling. So Jesus has come to fill the law. Jesus is the life of God that filled Adam, right. Um, and made Adam a living being. So scripture 
God breathed means that God breathes God's life. God's life is Jesus into scripture who fills scripture. He came to fill scripture. So 2 Timothy 3.16, I think is a sacramental or incarnational approach to scripture. And in the, in, in the Eastern church, um, particularly the early Eastern church, they didn't see inspiration as located in the text, the historical text as we do in the West. They saw it as located in the interpretation of the text which is exactly what is going on in everything I just described. Jesus, so Origen talks about that Jesus is the, 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 the jelly that gets filled into the donut. He doesn't actually use a jelly-filled donut. I don't think those existed then in the third century. But he, God, God breathes God's life, God's uh, son, Jesus, into the text. He fills the text. And Origen says that he uses the analogy uh, uh, the incarnation to compare scripture to. He says, just like Jesus took on the flesh of a human being uh, and became fully man, fully divine, uh, and yet his divinity was hidden from us, from his flesh. So scripture, the literal meaning, the, the, which is the top meaning, right? The, the early church didn't de deny a literal meaning, but they thought there was a spiritual meaning underneath uh, that you needed to dig deeper. That was the, the main thing you wanted to get to. That was the jelly filling in the donut you wanted to get to. So so the literal meaning is the flesh of Christ, allegoric, you know, speaking in terms of a metaphor. Um, and Jesus is the jelly, the jelly, right? Jesus is the spiritual meaning filled into the text. So this is why we read the text sacramentally or incarnationally. We read it as having a secondary spiritual sense. Jesus is the spiritual meaning in scripture um, that uh, is filled throughout scripture. So God breathed does not mean it is God's word. It means that God breathes God's life or word, who is Jesus, into the text. And he becomes the, the not only the spiritual meaning in the text, but when we read, according to the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, when we read scripture according uh, to Jesus, when we read it through the lens of the crucified and risen Christ, we see the veil lifted, as Paul talks about in Corinthians, we see the veil lifted um, that this literal meaning is lifted, and we see his divinity. We see Christ in, in the text. So, mic drop. Well, so, three things to say. One, um, Gabe, you're smarter than anybody I've ever met in my entire life. It's so, <laughs> <laughs> it's so like, like, you, like, it's one of those things where, like, I, I, I see being smart and being wise um, as not only someone who has information or understands information, but then can explain it in a way where other people understand too. Um, mm. And it's sort of like, I find, I, I just found that to be the way that you are. So, like, Thanks, you know, Thanks. it's, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's being smart if no one can understand mm -hmm. what you're saying. Yeah. And I think the way that you have these things and they're all kind of like, you know, ideas that get thrown up into the air and then they all get pulled back in together um makes it really great and then number two i'm not editing any of that because like like the part where we where we lost you um because i think it's it's fine but i think yeah. it'll be tough to like you know really get it the way we need it but then three um which goes back another place but i'd never had heard that argument on canon before um mm which is really interesting to me. So I don't want to talk about it now because I yeah. think it's deserving of its own episode. Yeah. Um, so I think it'd be really great um, once we finish here to talk about getting you back and talking yeah. about Canon, because I think that would be um, just a really interesting, I don't think people have thought about that before or heard about that before. Um, yeah. 
So, um, one, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'll send you, I did an episode on my podcast with Warren Carter and we talked exactly about that. Okay. Um, so that's who I've gotten, not just him, but that's who I've gotten a lot of stuff. So I'll have to send you that episode. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I guess the, the last thing we wanted to ask you, um, is you had, you had mentioned, um, that you had wanted to expand on or say differently something in regards to your book. Um, so I think Josh and I feel privileged I that, that you want to use. Yeah, yeah. I think oh. Gabe just nailed it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he, he did well, it. <laughs> okay. Well, then you did it. So sweet. I did it. <laughs> Is there you, anything else that uh, you guys want to talk about? Um, the word of God. I, you know, I had that huge. Se- so originally in the first chapter, I had what's in the appendix now on the okay. word of God used yeah. in the early church. That was all in the first chapter. Oh, right on. Okay. And uh, people were like, Gabe, this is unreadable. <laughs> so I took, a, I took like six examples and commented on them through the rest of the appendix. But I don't know if that's something, whatever you guys want to talk about. So, yeah. Well, I, I think, I think the, the thing that I, you know, um, well, what I think you do really well also is like you, like, you know, either you're screen mirroring our screens or something, but like you've answered a lot of the questions that we had before we got a chance to answer, ask them, um, because you, you're very thorough in the way that you speak and not in a, like, oh my gosh, like this guy is so thorough, like in a, like, oh, like he is like, he is nailing everything because we've got it all laid out. So, um, like we, like I said, I, I, Josh, I invited Gabe while you were guys, listeners, Josh was just in the bathroom, I think. And, um, I invited Gabe, Gabe to come back and, uh, uh, talk about canon with us uh, at some point, which would be uh, really cool. Not cannons like they used in the Revolutionary War. Um, I would know nothing about that. But canon, like the idea of, the, of scripture is canon. But I, I don't personally have any other any other questions besides like the basic wrap up questions. But Josh, you have anything else? Um, I mean, yes, but also we could keep going for three more hours like that's the problem (laughs) um damn um yeah i don't i mean i don't even know like i i mean i literally have your book up in front of me there's a lot there i'm like about this we could talk about this we could talk about this um yeah i mean there's a ton packed in and and also to your credit you did it in such a way that it's uh i think it, it's it's it'll work for people like you don't have to be a nerd to come along and follow what yeah. you're saying like you you do a good job of taking your your big concepts and ideas all the lines that i'm really bad at connecting for people you do a great job of doing that and then presenting it i'm really glad you um, said that because that was the because this is groundbreaking that no one's written on a doctrine essentially canonic doctrine of inspiration. I needed this to be somewhat yeah. academic, so it could serve as uh, you know foundation for stuff to be built off, and so that when it gets criticized, it's not like oh this is crap, you know. Um, but at the same time, I wanted it to be wanted it to be accessible to people that didn't have any theological training. Yeah, well- and that was like a really hard line to walk. Yeah, but I mean, I think you did a good job. And may, I mean, maybe perhaps, I mean, for sure I'm biased because like a lot of the people that you cited and all that kind of stuff, like I know this world, so I've followed it very easily. Yeah. And so, um, 
but yeah, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate it, man. And I, w- I would love to have you on again. I, I second Marty's, uh, Marty's invitation. Whenever you want to come hang out, you should. That's, you know, that's the gist. And maybe uh, I'll send you some beer or something oh, from that'd be fantastic. From the that I work what at. What the heck? That? That'd Is be that illegal? illegal? Are you allowed to do that? I don't think you can. You I never sent me anything. You sent me pictures and you say, if you want some, you're going to so, have to come here and get it. And it's like, well, what the That's heck, exactly man? right. Like, that's right. <laughs> but I mean, if I just, so I, but I have a personal relationship with you that stems back years. If I was just like, Hey, Gabe, come stay at my house. He'd be like, you're freaking weird. I don't think so. Or he'd, or he'd be like, okay, cool. Like, sounds good. We'll, we'll have some beer. Like, I don't know. I lived in Asia. And so I'd probably do the latter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Americans have this really like, we think that sort of thing's weird, but like Asians are very hospitable. It's like, they've never met a stranger in their life. You know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm always downing on American culture, but I think we could learn a tour thing from, you know, yes. uh, other cultures. So I agree. Well, yeah. well, Gabe, I mean, where, I guess, like, I, I guess we should probably just wrap up now and then we can always have you back on again and talk about other things. Yeah, for sure. Um, because, you know, I think listeners love listening to long episodes, but I think after a while it's oh, yeah. like, okay, well we could just do this two episodes and then they we'd get double the duty. So um, where, where can people find you and how would you like people to interact with you? Where can they get your book? That kind of stuff. Yeah. So the publisher is choir publishing and um, I don't know when this will be released, uh, but I think we're going to get the book off to the printer sometime this week. So a month, from this week, hopefully the book will be released. So sometime in uh, probably late June, uh, you'll be able to get it on Amazon. I think you'll be able to get it on uh, Barnes and Noble and kind of all the main places. If you want to interact with me, Facebook is probably the best way to do so. You can just type in Gabriel Gordon, um, look for me that way. I also blog uh, as part of an ecumenical blog that I run called the Misfits Theology Club haven't blogged in a while because I've been doing other stuff, but uh, www.misfitstheology.com, I think. Um, and you can actually contact us. And I'm the one that gets the emails. I don't look at those very often. So Facebook might be better, but those are probably the two main ways. So. Cool. Well, man, this has been, this has been really great. Um, and like I said, listeners, as you, as you probably heard, uh, if you, as you're at, at the end of the episode, um, there is, a lot here in this episode and it's just barely scratching the surface i think of what the book entails um and what gabe has to offer um as his, as his own individual if it is like like we we had ryan mullins on about a month ago and mm-hmm. like ryan mullins is like ridiculously smart josh and I, I i met him in person josh and i worked at a church that he spoke at once mm-hmm. um and uh like one of those people again that was like a super like dude like there is like I, we're, we're not even like we're not even we're not even scratching the surface of like the knowledge that this dude has and like i feel like you're exactly the same like Thanks, we could we could talk for another you know 48 hours and we still would be like okay well like i i think we're gonna have to come back to that <laughs> yeah so, so it it might surprise listeners and you guys to hear but my biggest insecurity is that i'm dumb no but but I understand yeah, I understand that feeling because like as a so I was a worship pastor for a long time and my biggest insecurity is being on stage and the quality of mm-hmm. my singing voice. Mm-hmm. So I think the things that other people see in us that we are good at yeah. become our biggest and for those that have insecurity issues, those become our our largest insecurities. Um, yeah. So I mean, listeners, 
get his book. Um, Gabe will be back 100% positive. 100%. Um, so um, otherwise, uh, Josh, I think I think this is a this is an episode. This, this is an episode in itself here. So we did it. We did yeah. it together. So well, we'll- I guess, Josh, <laughs> one thing I want to say before we end. Um, okay. So um, this doesn't have anything to do with Gabe unless Gabe wants to do this. Um, we haven't done a really super awesome job with our patron feed, um, but we do well, we do have a Patreon um, and uh, we don't necessarily like offer anything particular like on a regular basis to our patrons, but like we try to do something, I don't know, like once or twice a year. So like, unfortunately, like we aren't the best at like giving you something, but like if you want to support Josh and I and the work we do and like the the small, small, minuscule costs it is to run a podcast, <laughs> like you could you could help us, <laughs> whatever, whatever you want. We, we don't expect anything from anybody, but uh, we never talk about it. So I figured like, we may as well just say at the end of a podcast, right. okay. Give them um, money, guys. <laughs> I yeah. endorse it. Yeah. Sweet. I mean, there we go. I, we have to add that to our, our Instagram. We are endorsed yeah. by Gabe. Yeah, I, I just had to buy a new computer and new recording software for us to edit the podcast. So like, if you wanted to Venmo me a couple thousand bucks, like (laughs) (laughs) my wife would love you. My wife actually would start listening to the podcast if the podcast listeners paid for my new computer. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, hey, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. You can obviously find us at Rethinking Faith on Instagram and uh, there is a discussion group on Facebook, Rethinking Faith discussion Although group. I'm a shit moderator. I, I've not done a good job with that at all either. Well, I've done an okay job. Good. <laughs> there's been, in the last like six months, there's been like three people that have asked to join and I've just said yes to all of them. And there's been some, every once in a while, there's some cool discussion points in there. So um, if you'd like to join that and discuss and be a part, it'd be awesome. And um, But yeah, hey, uh, thanks for listening to our podcast. <laughs> Go Caps. Go Blackhawks, go Kraken, and go Mighty Ducks. And White Sox, Mighty Ducks. go Mighty Ducks, I guess Avalanche, uh, go all the sports teams. Yeah, peace and love, guys. <laughs>